Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 11, The Goatskin Waterbag Several things happened at the same time. The attackers awoke to the fact that Rick's light made a good target and started shooting. Rick dropped the flashlight as his rifle, swung with one hand, barrel forward, connected solidly with the top of Coe's head. Scotty jumped to see what was happening. The grenade rolled from Coe's hand, and as it did, the safety handle flew off. Coe had already pulled the pin. A musket slug cracked into the rocks inches from Rick's face and sent chips of stone into his face. He felt a sudden pain above one eye, but before he had time to realize what had happened, he was hauled back bodily into the crater by the guide. Scotty, who had recognized Coe in the beam of the fallen flashlight, grabbed the merchant by the collar and dragged him into the saucer with them. There was a five-second fuse on the grenade, but things happened so fast, there was a second to spare before it went off. Then, for an instant, there was a dull flash and the crump of the grenade. Shrapnel sliced through the woods below, bringing yells of fright. The camera! Rick gasped. He got to his hands and knees, shaking his head. There was wetness across one eye that he thought was blood. Scotty got his meaning instantly, and he snapped, Sing! Keep an eye on Co! and ran to the pack animals. It took him only a moment to find the camera and lift it from its case. Then he handed Zircon the special glasses and quickly fit his infrared telescopic sight onto his own rifle. Rick got to his feet, keeping the injured eye closed, and fumbled through the gear until he found his tripod. He set it up quickly and mounted the camera on it. Then he carried the unit to the edge of the saucer and pushed the button that lit up the infrared light. He couldn't see to shoot, but he could operate the camera unit. Through the special glasses, Zircon would be able to see anything the infrared beam hit. Scotty would be able to see, too, through his special telescopic rifle sight. Rick panned the light across the woods below. It wasn't light that could be seen, of course. Only the dull glow of the filament, too dim to be seen more than a few feet away, told him that the camera was operating. I see one, Zircon bellowed suddenly, and the words were echoed by the dull authoritative slap of the 4590. The heavy slug drove through the brush below. Missed, the scientist said in disgust. Scotty's rifle cracked sharply. Scotty didn't miss. There was a yell from below, then the noise of many men running through the underbrush. Rick guessed that the attackers didn't like the weird sharpshooting in the darkness. In a few moments there was quiet, and the infrared light found nothing but the silent woods. Singh, who had been crouching over Ko, ready frying pan in hand, said, They've gone, I think. These hill people don't like night fights very much. That's my guess, too, 
Scotty agreed. Zircon found his own flashlight, and ducking low, shot it over the saucer's edge. He waited long moments, but nothing happened. Had the men who attacked them still been in the woods below, they certainly would have fired at the tempting target. Bring that light over here, will you, Professor? Rick called. I think something hit me in the eye a while back. He tried to keep the concern out of his voice. Had he been blinded in that eye? Scotty and the professor hurried to him in some concern. Zircon shot the light into his face and he blinked with his good eye. Oh, damn, Zircon said softly. Then on closer examination, he sighed with relief. It's okay. It's just a scratch below your eyebrow. The eye isn't damaged. Scotty, find the first aid kit, okay? We'll have this cleaned up in a jiffy, Rick. While Scotty held the light, Zircon cleaned the wound and washed the blood from Rick's eye. Then in the midst of the operation, there was a metallic clang from where Singh stood guard. Scotty flashed the light over in time for them to see Worthington Coast stretched limply on the ground. Singh's smile flashed. He was waking up. I didn't want to bother you, so I made him sleep some more. Rick had to chuckle. Their efficient guide had bashed Coe with his frying pan. Zircon completed giving Rick first aid. It's clotting nicely, Rick. He cut a tiny bit of sterile gauze and affixed it with a bit of tape. There you go. Be good as new by morning. I suspect a chip of stone must have struck you. Rick tested the action of his eyelid on that side. The gauze felt ten times as big as it actually was, but it was all right. Thanks, Professor. Let's take a look at our captive now. Worthington Coe's slumber, induced by Singh's mighty frying pan, was not very deep. A cupful of water in the face brought him around readily enough, and he peered up at the Americans. He had lost his glasses in the shuffle, and without them, there was no doubt that he had one glass eye. He peered balefully from the good one. What, he demanded, is the meaning of this? We might ask the same, Zircon stated. Except that we can assume that you sponsored the attack on us. What we want to know is why. Ko snorted indignantly. Nonsense! I was coming to your aid, having made my way through the mob of Tibetan bandits. He rubbed his head. And then someone struck me. Were you going to use that grenade as a calling card? Rick asked caustically. Ko opened his mouth to speak, but Rick continued. Don't try to tell us you were going to use it in our defense. Men don't pull the pins on grenades until they're ready to toss them. That one had our name on it. Ko shrugged. I see you've convinced yourselves. It's useless for me to say anything further. He shut his mouth obstinately, nor could they get anything further out of him. Zircon motioned to Singh. Tie him up, then we'll post guards. We'll stay here for the night. He turned to the boys. I think it's safe to make a fire. We can have some supper and then turn in. I'll take the first watch with one of the bearers. Scotty will take the second. Rick the third and sing the last. He opened the chamber of his rifle and extracted the shell, then put the rifle down. I'm hungry, he said grinning. Nothing like a good fight to work up an appetite. Scotty laughed. You talk like a marine, he said admiringly. 
The night passed without incident, and the entire party was awake at dawn. Over breakfast, they discussed the affair again. Like the discussion of the night before, it proved futile. There were simply too many questions that had no answers. Rick summed it up. We found Long Shadow, and now we found the Chinese with the glass eye. Well, rather, they found us. It's obvious they're out for blood. Scares me to think of what would have happened on that junk if the Englishman and Bradley hadn't taken a hand. I'd like to know how they knew we were coming, Scotty said. Zircon drained the last of his coffee. I don't think they knew. We walked into Canton Charlie's and asked for Chada. We put the finger on ourselves there, so to speak. They probably assumed that anybody asking for Chada was an enemy. Obviously, they had some sort of contact with Chada. Otherwise, he wouldn't have cabled the descriptions after stating he was in danger. That sounds right, Rick agreed. He looked over to where Worthington Co. was having a cup of tea under the watchful eye of Singh. What do we do with our fat chum here? Cape for a hostage? Scotty suggested. Zircon shook his head. It's a good idea, but not very practical. It would require that we guard him constantly, and that would be a nuisance. No, I think we had better leave him and push on for Course Lenkin as rapidly as possible. Now that we know our danger is from Chada's enemies and not from casual bandits, we're forewarned. Well, what do we do with him, though? Rick asked. Leave him here on foot. His friends probably will find him, but I don't think that matters. Now that we know him, he's less dangerous. We can treat him like any other brigand. Rick and Scotty agreed. As they drew nearer the goal, both of them were increasingly anxious to get to Chada, to hear from him some of the answers to their questions, and finally to get down to the business of finding the heavy water that was the reason for their quest. Although they hadn't discussed it, Rick was worried about Chada. Normally he had full confidence in the Hindu boy's ability to take care of himself. But this time Chada was far from the kind of people he knew, among unfriendly strangers. Was his friend hiding somewhere in the mountains around Course Lincoln? Or had he found a hideout in the village itself? They would soon know. After breakfast, Rick, Scotty, and Singh surveyed the scene of the ambush, leaving Zircon to guard the Chinese and to direct the repacking of their gear. There were definite signs of the enemy's presence in the woods below. One area was pretty well trampled, indicating to Scotty's trained eye that the ambushers had departed in a big hurry. The Chinese guide pointed to where ants were swarming around a section of ground. Someone was hit there. Ants find bloodstains fast in this country. We were aiming low, Scotty said. Probably a leg wound. Sang, where do you suppose Ko's mules are? The guide shrugged. Pretty sure to be far away. The men who attacked us wouldn't leave mules behind. They're too valuable. Scotty led the way down the trail to where the first shots had been fired. The three moved cautiously just in case the attackers were waiting a little distance away. Scotty's rifle was ready for instant use. I was right here, Singh said. Cole's mules were ahead of me, just a few yards away. Let's go ahead some and take a look. The trail wound through the woods for a little distance and then broke into a clearing. Rick saw gear littered over the ground and pointed to it. 
looks as if they left something behind. In a moment, they were looking through what was evidently Ko's entire luggage. Singh kicked at a pile of cooking utensils. They took the mules but left everything else. Funny they'd do that, Rick said thoughtfully. After all, Ko is the boss. He must have arranged the ambush. Unless we're wrong about him. I don't think we're wrong, Scotty denied. You hit it on the nose when you said a man doesn't pull the pin on a grenade unless he's ready to throw it. Ko must be the boss. Singh examined a richly embroidered robe. My guess is that Ko hired a few Tibetan bandits. They wouldn't worry about him or his belongings after being met by heavy resistance, and his bearers would be afraid to stay and face him. Or maybe they thought he was killed while attacking us. There was a lot of noise, and it was dark. Rick thought Singh was probably right. He walked over to a pile of furs. What are these? he asked. Ko must have been a fur trader. Singh looked up. They're water bags. Goatskin. Very common in China. He dropped the robe and came to look, face wrinkling into a frown. But usually a man doesn't carry so many. That's strange. Rick and Scotty examined one with interest. It was a whole skin, except for the head and the feet. Even the tail was still attached. The ends of the legs had been sewn up, but the neck was left open. Attached to the neck opening was a rawhide thong that could be used to bind the opening tight when the skin was filled with water. These are good bags, Singh said. Better than most I've seen. Maybe he was planning on selling them? Rick suggested. I don't think so. The Chinese guide shook his head. People here make their own. Every time they kill a goat for meat, that's a new goat skin. The Buddhist Tibetans, who don't kill anything, even flies, they use pottery jugs. Scotty had started counting the bags. He paused at the ninth and held it up. This one is split open. Looks like the same gave way. There's a sort of funny lining inside. Rick took the skin and turned it inside out. It was smooth and glassy on the inside, and the substance was completely transparent because he could see the skin underneath. Singh felt it. I've never seen anything like it before. Rick held it to his nose and sniffed. It was odorless. He took his pocket knife and scraped at it while the others watched. A tiny flake shaved off. He tested it between his fingers and it was flexible as rubber. An idea was growing in his head. This is crazy. But you know what I think? I think this is a plastic lining. The professor can tell us, Scotty suggested. Come on, let's take it to him. They ran back up the trail, Rick leading with the skin. If the stuff were plastic, it could mean only one thing. He lengthened his stride. Zircon looked up from his notebook as they topped the hill and ran toward him. He dropped the book and jumped to his feet, reaching for the rifle. It's not another ambush, Rick panted. He held out the skin. Sis, Professor, what, what's this transparent stuff inside? Zircon took the skin and ran his fingertips over the lining. He held it up so that it caught the light and then looked at Rick curiously. That's odd, he muttered. This is certainly goat skin. That's almost certainly a plastic lining. I can't be sure, of course, but I've never seen anything like this in nature. It's a goatskin water bag, Rick said excitedly. He pointed to Ko. He had a dozen of them. 
Sirkon bellowed. So then if this is plastic... It was a clever stunt, Rick finished. No one would suspect coolies toting goatskin water bags, and even if anybody did suspect, he wouldn't be able to tell anything by casual examination. Seng scratched his head. Forgive my stupidity, he said. The suspicious one wouldn't be able to tell what. If this lining is plastic, it's a senseless waste. Water keeps cool in a goatskin bag because of evaporation through the pores. It certainly couldn't evaporate through plastic. No, Zircon agreed. That's the idea. They don't want evaporation. Also, the plastic guarantees the water's purity. Singh said nothing else, but he was obviously puzzled. Nor could the Americans tell him what had excited them, that they had found the means by which the substance they sought was being carried to the coast. Rick had a quick vision of Chinese coolies making their slow way through the countryside unnoticed because water-bearers were so commonplace. But the coolies in this case carried bags lined with plastic, and the stuff that made the legs thrust out stiffly and that swelled the bag was no ordinary water. It was the stuff that had brought them halfway around the world. Chapter 22 The Buddhist Monk the party topped a rise and stopped, spellbound at the scene that spread before them. They were on the rim of a great valley. Far on the other side of the valley stood the high peaks of the Himalayas, a mighty screen between them and India. Below, a lush green path marked the course of a wide river. On either side of it, sloping up to the mountains, was the lighter green of grasslands. Singh pointed. There is Course Lincoln. Rick had to look hard before he saw it. Then he began to make it out. The monastery was built under a great cliff on one side of the valley. At first glance, it seemed like part of the cliff itself. It was huge, with tier after tier of gray stone buildings rising in piled masses from the valley floor. Around it, like tiny mounds of earth, were the hair tents of the Tibetans. Magnificent, Zircon rumbled. Well worth coming to see even if we find nothing at the end of the trail. We'll find Chada, Scotty said. I'm sure we will, and the sooner the better. Rick felt the same way. Now that the end of the trail was in sight, excitement was rising within him. He was anxious to find his Hindu friend and to find at the same time answers to some of the mysteries they had encountered. Let's hurry, he said impatiently. Singh shouted at the bearers, and the party took a narrow trail that dipped into the valley. Scotty rode ahead with Singh, and his rifle was ready for instant use. Rick and Zircon brought up the rear, their own rifles held ready. They had taken no chances since the fight on the hilltop. Worthington Co. had been left afoot far behind them, but there was no assurance his friends hadn't come to rescue him with horses. Rick kept glancing behind, just in case of an attack from the rear. They had reached the rim of the valley by mid-morning. All through the day they made their way down the mountain, reaching the valley floor about three in the afternoon. Another two hours of steady travel took them past the yurts of Tibetan herders, conical tents made of horsehair felt. The stolid Tibetans watched them pass, no interest in their beady eyes. Then, as darkness began to set in, they reached the monastery. Course Lenkin, towered above them, 
already shaded in twilight. From somewhere within the great pile they heard the tinkle of bells, then the deep tones of a mighty gong. Lamas, priests in yellow robes, walked past with bowed heads. Some of them spun their prayer wheels and intoned the Buddhist ritual. Om Mani Padme Hum Om Mani Padme Hum Hail the jewel in the lotus. The jewel, of course, was the Lord Buddha. They watched the pageant for a few moments, enthralled. Then Zircon commanded Singh, Find someone you could talk to. We'll want to see the High Lama. Singh nodded. I will go into the monastery. The bearers will find a place to camp. He issued orders in Chinese. The bearers scattered at once, searching for suitable places to pitch camp. The three Americans sat their horses and watched the activities around the great monastery, too interested even to talk. Rick saw countless yellow robes on the various balconies. There must have been thousands of monks, he thought, and there were an equal number of Tibetans, many of them already busy at cooking fires near the base of the gray stone buildings. He smelled mutton cooking and the acrid, unpleasant odor he had learned to identify with yak butter. Hot buttered tea was a Tibetan staple. He had tried it on the trail because he was interested in everything, even yak butter, but he didn't think it would ever take the place of ice cream in his affections. One of the bearers came back and motioned to them. They followed as he led the pack mules to a place in the shelter of a great rock. The other bearers were forging for wood. In a few moments a fire was going and the camp was being set up. Singh returned. No one may see the High Lama he reported. He's in the middle of some kind of ceremony that takes a month, but I talked with an important priest. He was friendly. He said he would send one of the lamas to be our guide and to help us find your friend. Good, Zircon said. Now let's go have some dinner. I'm famished. The boys echoed the sentiment. It was fully dark before they ended their meal. They were squatting around the fire, sipping coffee, and listening to Zircon's description of the Buddhist ritual, when one of the bearers suddenly called out. The three Americans and Singh reached for their weapons as a yellow-robed lama shuffled out of the darkness. This evidently was their guide. He was of less than medium height, but that was all Rick could tell about him. His loose robe draped around his body, and his cowl was pulled up, hiding his face. Welcome, Zircon boomed. Singh, speak to him. Tell him we're grateful for his coming. Singh spoke to the monk in Chinese. The robed lama stood immobile, just within range of the firelight. The yellow flames made shadows across his cowled figure. Rick felt a little shudder run through him. The quiet figure was kind of weird. Singh shifted to another language, but the lama still made no reply. Then slowly he brought his hands up level, outstretched toward them. He chanted slowly, voice muffled under the cowl. Then the chant died, and his hands were lowered once more. I wish they would have sent us somebody we could talk with, Scotty grumbled. A lot of use this joker is going to be for us. The monk's cowl turned slowly toward Scotty. The figure moved majestically toward the boy. Then the hands lifted again and from under the cowl a sepulchral voice issued. 
I could be more use than you think, Muttonhead. For an instant there was stunned silence. Then Rick and Scotty leapt for the robed figure with yells of delight. Rick hit him high and Scotty hit him low, and they held him down and pulled the cowl from him, then pummeled him unmercifully, while Zircon cheered them on. Only when the monk begged for mercy did they let him up. He tossed the robe aside and grinned at them. Okay, Chada said. You win, but it took you plenty of time to get here. Why did you take so long? The slim Hindu boy hugged them solemnly one at a time and shook hands with Singh. Now I want to eat, he announced. I've gotten plenty sick of sheep meat, you bet. Then they were all laughing and talking at once while the cook hastened to prepare a meal. In a few moments, Chada was attacking a high-piled plate and talking between bites. It is good you came now. I've gotten plenty worried. Did you find Bradley? Zirkan told him of the meeting at the hotel. Chada nodded. Good. I think he will show up here soon. Now start at the beginning, Rick demanded. There's a whole lot we don't know. In fact, if you come right down to it, we don't know anything. Okay. Chada took a sip of coffee. I'll start at the start, in Bombay. Chada had been visiting with his family in Bombay when Bradley arrived in the Indian city. The two had met by accident. Chada had gone to the Taj Mahal Hotel to write a letter to the boys, because there was no paper or ink at home. Bradley, who happened to be in the lobby, had noticed the address on the envelope as Chada handed it to the desk clerk. Once the scientists discovered that Chada knew the Spindrift group and had been on expeditions with them, the rest followed naturally. Bradley realized that the clever little Hindu boy would be of great value in his undercover work and had hired him immediately. Chada didn't say so, but Rick could understand that such was the case. Chada's duties had been of general assistant. He had cared for luggage, run errands, acted as secretary, and on a few occasions had been assigned to follow people in whose destinations Bradley was interested. The two had gone from Bombay to New Delhi and Calcutta, and then to Singapore. At Singapore, while following up another matter, Bradley accidentally had discovered that heavy water was being sold. He was very excited, Chada said. I did not know why. Heavy water. I asked myself, what is heavy water? I knew about ice, which is frozen water, and which is heavy. But who would have such excitement about ice? Sahib Bradley hurried to the consulate of America, and he sent a cable to Washington. Then the scientist had assigned Chada to watch a certain house in Singapore, the place from which the heavy water was being taken to unknown destinations. Chada had watched for three days without relief, and he had seen Worthington Co. Then, since Bradley had not come for him, he deserted his post long enough to return to their quarters, a room in an obscure Chinese hotel in Singapore. There he had found evidence of a fight and bloodstains on the floor. There was no sign of Bradley. It was then that Chada guessed that Long Shadow had found him. He saw the shadow several times while he hunted for Bradley. Then, while searching for his boss in the Tamil Quarter, he had been attacked by Chinese thugs led by Worthington Co. They had beaten him into insensibility and hustled him into a taxi and were carrying him somewhere into the inland of Malaya when he regained consciousness. He escaped by going headlong through a window while the car was traveling, and then taking cover in the jungle alongside the road. Going by a roundabout route, he reached Singapore again. 
There he found that their luggage was being held by the hotel and the room had been rented to someone else. Chada polished his plate with a biscuit and groaned expressively. I said to myself, Chada, now is the time to think really hard. What should you do? He knew that Bradley had sent a cable for Hartz and Brandt to be assigned to the job, and he knew also that from Singapore they were to head for Hong Kong. He knew nothing about Hong Kong, but he did know that Bradley was acquainted with a place called the Golden Mouse, because he had heard him mention it to a Chinese the scientist used for undercover work now and then. The long shadow came again while I was thinking, Chada continued. I saw it in front of the hotel, so I went quick fast out the back and ran through many places until I was sure he could not find me. I went to where many Indians live in Singapore, and I found a friend. The friend, another Indian, had gone to the United States Information Library in Singapore and borrowed a copy of the World Almanac. Chada had already decided he would cable his friends and how he would do it. He knew because of what they had told him that they would be able to figure out a book code and that they would realize his choice naturally would be the almanac. Knowing the annual by heart, he naturally also knew the table that converted Roman numerals to Arabic numbers and had used the letter L as a clue to the right volume. But how did you know about nulls? Rick asked. Oh, that was very lucky. I learned how to put Sahib Bradley's messages in code, and there were many nulls. He grinned impishly. Of course, I did not know if you two also know what are nulls. But anyway, they are plenty smart to read a book. That will tell them about nulls. We didn't have to read a book. Dad told us, Scotty said. Hudson Brandt is also plenty smart, even without books, Chada agreed. Anyway, I made the message and sent the cable. Rick interrupted again. How'd you know Ko had a glass eye? Chada smiled. When they captured me, I fought like ten wild elephants. I kicked Honorable Mr. Ko in the face. And what happened? His glasses fall off, and one of his eyes fall out. Also, it broke when it fell. I saw it was glass. I am so surprised I forgot to fight, and someone hit me from the back of my neck, and then all went dark. I did not know Mr. Ko's name then. My boss told it to me later. No more questions for the moment, Sir Khan ordered. I want to hear the rest of this. Go ahead, Chada. Finish. The Hindu boy had used his friend as a go-between and had arranged for the council general to advance him funds. Since the official knew he worked for Bradley, that was not difficult. Then he had arranged for their baggage to be shipped and held at the airport in Hong Kong and had taken a plane there himself. At the Golden Mouse, Canton Charlie had given him quarters. In another day, Bradley showed up. The scientist had been caught in the Singapore hotel room by Cohen Company, but he had fought his way clear. There wasn't time to leave a note for Chada at the hotel, and he didn't dare return to the room for fear of having the enemy locate him again. So he had depended on Chada's wits to tell him the next step, and had gone ahead to Hong Kong, hoping to find more information about heavy water. In Hong Kong, the long shadow had shown up again. Bradley, in the meantime, had not been idle. Through his various sources of information, he had determined that the source of the heavy water was in the neighborhood of Course Lincoln. Chada was instructed to go there at once and start reconnoitering the place while they waited for the party from the States. Bradley deliberately dropped the disguise he had been using, 
that of a Portuguese seaman, and let Longshadow locate him. Then he had started out, hoping to draw the enemy away from Chada long enough for the boy to get clear and start for Course Lincoln. Bradley was to shake the enemy when he could and resume his investigation. Finding the source of the water was not enough, he said. It was also necessary to find out how it was reaching Singapore and what its ultimate destination might be. Chada had experience with Buddhist monasteries, dating back to the time when he had worked in Nepal. Also, many Indians were Buddhists. There were some in almost every monastery, and of that number a few could be depended on to speak Hindi, or Hindustani as it was called, which was Chada's language. He also knew a little Tibetan from his years in Nepal. I came here easy, Chada finished. There was a lot of pilgrims, and they took me in. They thought I was a monk, and I found Indians like I had thought. They hid me. So I do not think Longshadow knows I am here. And now I know where the heavy water comes from. Sirkan gave an exclamation. Chada, you're a marvel. So where does it come from? Tomorrow I will show you, Chada promised. Who's Longshadow? Rick demanded. Chada shrugged. I do not know. We have never seen him. Only his shadow. Scotty stirred up the fire a little. How come Canton Charlie didn't turn you over to the enemy like he did us? What? Chada was astonished. Scotty quickly outlined their adventures while Chada listened thoughtfully. When he had finished, the Indian boy shook his head. Something went bad wrong. Charlie is one of Bradley's men. My boss pays him, and he is friendly. You say Charlie told you to go to this junk? Rick thought back. Charlie himself had never actually told them that. They had not seen Charlie when the note was dropped on their table. Charlie himself didn't tell us, Rick stated. It could have been one of Longshadow's men, or one of Coe's, and that Portuguese with the knife could have been one of Longshadow's men too. I'll bet he was the one who put the finger on us. He must have heard us ask for Chada. Longshadow and his men knew Chada, of course, and they would certainly try to get rid of reinforcements like us. Right, Sirkan agreed. Maybe the fault was ours and not waiting for Charlie to tell us himself. Although I don't see how he could have known. I think that is it, Chada said. Charlie is a friend, so the men on the junk with purple sails were long shadows, and you were plenty lucky to get out with your skins, believe me. Sirkan rubbed his chin. Chada... Our instructions from Bradley were to bring a rubber boat and a Nansen bottle. That must mean the heavy water source has something to do with a lake or a river. Is that true? I don't know about those things. I only know that the heavy water comes from a place near here. I know how to get there and I will take you. I do not think we will like this place very much. It has a bad name. What kind of bad name? Scotty asked. In English, Chada said, it translates as the Caves of Fear. <laughs>